0: Alright guys, so uh, the reason that we're showing that video this morning is because we've got some exciting news. And so we made that video to invest in the future possibility that we would have a long-term home as a church family. And the exciting news is that this last Thursday, we as a church signed a purchase agreement to buy a building. And so over the next uh, several weeks, we are going to be uh, filling you in on some details of what it looks like uh, for us to move forward with that purchase. And I got a couple important dates uh, that you can write down. Um, that's March 22nd. Uh, we're going to be having uh, vision night. And on March 29th is going to be Pledge Sunday. And that's because... We had so much fun doing Multiply 1.0 that we thought, why not go ahead and do Multiply 2.0 and invest some more of our resources in God's eternal kingdom, watch him continue to multiply our church. So since the making of that video, we don't have 300 people coming to our church. We have 450 people coming to our church. We haven't baptized 60 people. We've baptized 124 people. And we would like to see God continue to do that work and we believe that by investing in a place to call home that God will use that investment to continue to expand his kingdom in the city. So we're asking that you over the next several weeks would begin to pray what God would have you give and that you would listen as we explain the details and we're asking that God would move in our hearts and that we would be in that place about a year from now. Wouldn't that be awesome? Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word together and uh, continue to look at Genesis. So, Father God, thank you uh, for what you're doing. Thank you um, for the opportunity to have uh, this place that you have um, provided. And thank you for the opportunity to sign a purchase agreement. Thanks for the excitement uh, that we're sharing in this room this morning together. And uh, thank you that you are here present with us, ready to speak to us Uh, ready to move in our hearts. Just ask that we would be attentive to what you have to say. And pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, guys, like I said, we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and we've seen that God is at work in the life of ordinary people, and that his purpose is often hidden from us, but is Made known through the ordinary events of life, and i don 't know where you 're at this morning, but one thing that 's probably on the back of your mind is somebody that something that 's affecting everybody uh, in the world today, and that is the coronavirus and i don 't know if you 've been like me reading articles about it, kind of staying updated on it, and you 've sort of got your your perspective on it, but I think that what Something like the coronavirus does is it makes us begin to ask questions about our lives, and it begins to make us think deeply about our lives, and even begins to make us ask the question, where is God in all of this? And in sort of my research, I came across an article um, that was written for New Yorker Magazine, and the title of the article is How Pandemics Change History, and it was written by um a guy named Frank Snowden who's professor emeritus of history and history of medicine at Yale so he's he's kind of important but he wrote this book called Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present and probably no one would have read the book and then coronavirus happened so now people want to interview him and get his take on what it looks like when a pandemic happens in the world and here's what he said about this epidemic and epidemics in general he said epidemics are a category of disease that seem to hold up the mirror to human beings as to who we really are that is to say they obviously have everything to do with our relationship to our mortality to death to our lives they also reflect our relationships with the environment the built environment that we create and the natural environment that responds they show the the moral relationships that we have toward each other as people, and we're seeing that today. So here's what Snowden is saying. He's saying when things like this happen on this type of scale, they cause us to look in the mirror, and they show us what we really believe about everything that is important. What we believe about life, what we believe about death, and what we believe about morality, and I would say, what we believe about God. And so in answer to the question, what is God doing, we have a timely word from the book of Genesis this morning. And we're sort of zooming way out, and what we're going to see in this passage is that God is at work in every detail of human history. It's kind of cheesy, but I've heard it said before, and it's actually very helpful to think of history as his story and when we understand that history is under the sovereign control of God and that he is moving it in a purpose and for our good we can relax we can trust him and we can continue to move forward in faith so we're gonna be looking at Genesis chapters 36 through 41 normally I do a three-point outline. This morning, I have 34 observations. Okay, so we're going to be here for four and a half hours. So buckle your seatbelt. All right, not really. All right, but basically what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage because the story of Joseph occupies 30% of the book of Genesis. And the reason that the story of Joseph occupies 30% of the book of Genesis, is because God wants to show us that he is at work in the smallest details of life, and that he is working those small details toward his grand purpose, even things that we would think of as inconsequential. So I'm going to make some observations about the text. I'm starting in Genesis 37, verse 3, and let's walk through it and have some fun. Here we go. The first observation is that Jacob favored Joseph. So we're looking here at verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. So here's what we know. We know that Jacob's dad Isaac favored his brother Esau and now what we see in the life of Jacob is that he is committing what's called a generational sin and he is favoring his son Joseph. And so he buys him this robe of many colors. And as a consequence of that, number two, Joseph's brothers hated him. Okay, he had 11 brothers. Verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Maybe some of you have had a sibling who your parents favored. And if you're honest, when I read that, it brings up some bad memories, and you're like, yes, I get it. I also sort of hate them. And that was the reality in the life of Joseph's brothers. Thirdly, this made things worse. Joseph was a dreamer. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So here's what happens. They already hate him because his dad favors him. And he's got this nice coat that they would like to have. And now they hate him even more because Joseph is a dreamer. But he's not one of those dreamers who just sort of dreams and keeps his dreams to himself and writes a journal. He's the type of dreamer who brags about his dreams. And his dream happens to be that his brothers will all bow down at his feet and worship him. So they already hate him. And now he tells his brothers about his dream and they don't like it as much as he does. Okay, then in the narrative we see next that Jacob sent Joseph to find his brothers. So his brothers happened to be shepherds. Jacob sent Joseph to find his brothers. Verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So here's what happens, right? The brothers hate Joseph. They are way off in a different place, away from their dad, outside of his oversight and control. And it's Jacob's idea. And he says, Joseph, I think you should go check out and see what they are doing. Which is an important detail in the story. Because when his brothers find out that he's coming, they decide to kill him. All right? So verse 18 says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they saw the robe. They remembered their hate. They have this conversation with each other. And they're like, let's take care of this. Let's kill this guy. But one of the brothers spoke up. So, verse 22 Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And so we see that even though Reuben is one of the brothers who hated Joseph, and we don't know why yet in the story, but for some reason, Reuben doesn't feel good about killing Joseph. And so he says, No, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit. So he's buying some time because he actually is seeking to save his brother Joseph's life. He doesn't want to follow through on that. So then the next detail that's important is that they threw him into an empty cistern. Verses 23 and 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So there's just this little detail. There's no water in the pit. It's an important detail because had there been water in the pit, Joseph's life would have ended right there. He would have drowned. So his life's saved because Reuben says, hey, don't kill him. And his life's saved because they throw him in a pit and the pit happens to have No water in it. Then they saw a caravan. Verse 25. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So you got to imagine, these guys are out in the middle of nowhere. They're tending their sheep. They throw their brother in a pit, he's probably screaming, and of course they just sit down to have a sandwich, and as they're sitting down to a sandwich, there happens to be this caravan that passes by. And at this point, another one of his brothers speaks up, named Judah, verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brother listened to him. So already, one of the brothers, Reuben, who hated him, speaks up and saves his life. They throw him in a pit. It doesn't happen to have any water in it, so he doesn't die. Then Judah speaks up as his brothers are still sort of seething with bitterness and anger and hatred, and some of them are probably still thinking about killing him. And he says, oh wait, look. This is convenient. This caravan's coming by. Let's just sell him into slavery because he's our own flesh. In other words, he's our brother. We love him. Let's sell him into slavery. What? The next detail's incredibly important to our story. Number 10, Joseph was sold to Potiphar. So verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph isn't sold to some ordinary household slave. He's sold to a very important person in a very powerful country. He's sold to a general in the army. He's going to work for him and he's going to, we'll see, be recognized by him. Immediately, Potiphar promoted Joseph. Verse 39, or or chapter 39, verses three and four. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. This is the first mention that we have so far of the Lord. And what we begin to understand at this point in the story is that the Lord's hand had been guarding all the details. It's sort of the first time in the story where we take a breath and we say, what are the chances? Joseph was kind of an idiot. His brothers were trying to kill him. They sold him into slavery, seeking to ruin his life. And in very short order, Joseph is given a prominent position in the house of a prominent person. Number 12, seems like an inconsequential detail, but Joseph was handsome. 6B. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. We know that this actually goes way back into his history. See, his dad, Jacob, loved this woman named Rachel, and Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Joseph was the child of Jacob and Rachel. And so he was also a handsome man. Which is an important detail in our story because Potiphar's wife was interested. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So Joseph has been put in this prominent position. He's over his master's house. He trusts him implicitly with the daily operations of his house. So Joseph happens to be at the house often alone with Potiphar's wife. And he happens to be handsome, and she happens to be interested. But Joseph was pure. Number 14, Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 39. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against So Joseph is given the opportunity to sleep with a powerful man's wife and she is aggressively pursuing after him and he happens to have the type of character that he is able to withstand that temptation. How many of us would have the type of character that if left alone in the house with a beautiful woman who is pursuing after us would be able to, to say no in that situation. But Joseph was the type of man who so believed in God that he believed that to sin by sleeping with Potiphar's wife would be a sin against God himself. He was so aware of God's presence. And we'll see that he continually, day after day, said, no, that's because Potiphar's wife was persistent. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So day after day, she's saying the same thing. My husband's out of the house. All the guards are out of the house. All the other servants are out of the house. I want you to come. I want you to come sleep with me. And day after day, Joseph has the type of character that he is able to withstand these assaults. Continually aware of the presence of God, continually saying no to this woman. Number 16, she's really persistent. But one day, this is verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying lie with me. So up until this point, she's just been verbally sort of trying to persuade him to sleep with her. But he must have been a really handsome guy because she just loses her mind in this moment and just runs up to him. And she must have been really grabbing on to this garment because she runs up to Joseph. She grabs on to him and she's like, please sleep with me. I'm so tired. Of pursuing after you, and you saying no, I just want you to sleep with me. I'm not used to guys refusing my advances. Something unfortunate happens to Joseph. He lost his clothes. Okay? Must not have been too good at uh, tying his belt. 12b, in the, in the providence of God. Uh, but he left his garment in his hand and fled and got Out of the house. Embarrassing scene. He's running across the courtyard. I don't know if he's naked at this point. Got his underwear on. I don't know what's under the garment. But the garment is in the house. And Joseph is not in the house. Which turns out to be very unfortunate. That's because Potiphar's wife was a liar. She's not just struggling with lust. She's also struggling with lying. Breaking two of the big ten. All right, 14B, he came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice and as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she tells a completely different story. She doesn't talk about her persistently wanting to sleep with him. She says he came here to rape me and I screamed and he just threw off his clothes. Kind of a crazy story. She believes it, and because she believes it, and she's a powerful woman, we see that other people believe it. Namely, Potiphar. Uh Uh-oh. Number 19. What happens next is that Potiphar threw Joseph into prison. Verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And we understand earlier in the story where it says that the Lord was with Joseph, but we begin to question that at this moment. We thought, oh wait, he was in this pit, God rescued him out of the pit and gave him this place of prominence. But now we see him in another pit. And we're wondering, where is God? What is God doing? Why is this happening? Especially because Joseph didn't respond sinfully. He responded with righteousness. And so again, we're asking the question, what is going on? And we get the answer in verses 20 and 22, where we see that Joseph got put in charge of the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. So we learn something about Joseph over and over again. He's recognized very quickly by those who are in leadership over him that he is administratively gifted. And so he gets put in this position of prominence, and you could have said that the prison guard is the one who chose him, but we see that God is weaving together this story, and we see that maybe God has a purpose in him being in the prison. Then something kind of unrelated seems to happen. And that's that Pharaoh's employees committed a crime. Verse 1, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And very quickly we see that they were thrown in prison, and it happened to be the prison that Joseph was in. Verses two and three. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. And after some time of being in the prison, and again Joseph has this large administrative role, so nothing happens without him seeing it happen in the prison. He begins to realize that this chief cupbearer and this chief baker are troubled about something. And that's because they've both been starting to have dreams. Number Or verse 5. And one night, they both dreamed. And we know that Joseph has this history. He's a dreamer. And what we begin to learn is that God has also given him this tremendous gift of being able to interpret other people's dreams verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And so they tell him this dream and Joseph interprets the dream to them. And then later, Joseph's interpretation of the dream comes true, verses 21 and 22. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so the interpretation of the dream is you're going to live and be promoted. You're going to die. And at a later time, he lives and gets promoted, and he dies. And then we see that the one who lived, the cupbearer, forgot about Joseph. Instead of telling Pharaoh or instead of telling a bunch of people that Joseph was this amazing dream interpreter, he forgot about Joseph. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. But then, at the beginning of chapter 41, we see something else happen in God's providence, and that is that Pharaoh had a dream. But listen to the beginning of this sentence. Verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Okay, we read the story and we think these things are just happening. And, and we might begin to think, oh, this is how God works. is just like, oh, I'm down, I'm up. Oh, sweet, God's working. God's doing his thing. But it often feels like two whole years of waiting in prison. So after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed, and no one could interpret the dream. Pharaoh told them, the magicians, his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And it's at this point, the chief cupbearer, the guy who holds the king's wine glass, remembers Joseph because no one can interpret the dream. And he sees an opportunity for himself. If I recommend the person who can interpret dreams, maybe I'll be recognized and I'll be promoted even more. And so he remembers Joseph. Verse 2 of chapter 41. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And so then Joseph is called up to interpret Pharaoh's dream verses 15 and 16, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then this is remarkable. Verse 31, Joseph, or uh, number 31, Joseph gave Pharaoh advice. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. I say this is remarkable because Pharaoh is one of the most powerful people in the world. And you have a Hebrew slave standing in front of him, telling him what to do. And what you would expect to happen in that moment is for him to get his head cut off. And instead, Pharaoh thinks... Yeah, that's a good idea. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And then what happens next is the purpose that God has been working toward all along. Number 33, Joseph became the second most powerful man in Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And so Joseph is put in charge, and the specific interpretation that he had of the dream is that there would be a famine in the land. And so they needed to save up a bunch of grain in the years of plenty so that when all the food ran out, they would be able to. To save the world. And here's number 34. Joseph saved the world. It's not an overstatement. Verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Okay, Here's what I want you to recognize. Here's why we spend all the time doing that is because each of these minor occurrences are like links in a chain. And if any of them doesn't happen, then everybody on earth dies. So if Jacob doesn't favor Joseph, everybody on earth dies. If Potiphar's wife isn't attracted to Joseph, everybody on earth dies. If the cistern had water in it, everybody on earth dies. And could it be that God is orchestrating the events of human history and even the events of our lives and that he has a greater purpose in mind than we could ever imagine? Could it be that he actually knows what he's doing With coronavirus. That he actually knows what he's doing with your suffering. That he actually knows what he's doing in your marriage. That he actually has a purpose that is often invisible to us. But that is good. Could it be that he wants us to look up to him and to trust him? Let me make just a few observations to close about what God was doing in the events of Joseph's life. First of all, God was keeping his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis fifteen thirteen through 14, God said this to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So what God has told Abraham, that he's going to bless him, that he's going to make his name great, that his offspring is going to bless the whole world, but he also tells him that at some point, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. And we begin to see that reality come to fruition in the story of Joseph because our question has been who are they going to be enslaved by and now we see that Joseph is this powerful man in Egypt and that Egypt would be the type of nation that would have the ability to enslave the Hebrew people and that one day we would get to see the exodus happen and so God is bringing the Hebrew people into Egypt for that purpose. Secondly, we see that God was protecting Joseph's family. So sometimes we can think of God's purposes in this huge way and we can think, okay, he's trying to get the Hebrew people enslaved in Egypt. God seems to be very cold hearted. But we also see that some of those people who God would rescue would be the immediate family members of Joseph. So we see that all the family drama was for this purpose That God would actually rescue them from this famine. We see not just the big sovereignty of God, but we also see his kindness. He is kind to individuals and he is sovereign in charge of all creation. Thirdly, we see that God was preparing the way for Jesus. Now, we actually skipped a whole chapter as we were walking through the story of Joseph. And we actually skipped over the most important character in the entire story. And I doubt any of you even know who he was. Do you guys know the name of Joseph's brother, Judah's two kids? I didn't either. One of them's name was Perez. And this little boy Perez was part of the people who would be saved from the famine. And if you flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 and you begin to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you will see that it starts off this way. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah, and Judah was the father of Paris. So you see that this little boy who's hidden in what seems to be an insignificant chapter in the Bible would be saved from a famine and eventually from his line would come your savior. See, Joseph isn't a prominent character. Perez was. And often God is hiding in plain sight what he is doing. God's ways are hidden to us. Jesus was hidden in a little town called Bethlehem. His work on the cross is hidden from many people around us as the most important event in history. And yet, if we will look to Jesus, the Bible says that we will be saved. Fourthly, in this story, God is showing us how to live. Let me make a few observations. There's lots of things that could be said. We don't live with regret because we see that we are here, where we're at right now in our lives, in part because of our stupidity. See, Joseph was a dreamer. He's bragging about everything, and that set the course of his entire life. And so what we don't do is we don't look back at our past and just say, man, I've messed up my life. Quite frankly, you don't have the power to mess up your life. God is in charge, and he is working your past for your good if you will cling to him and look to him in faith instead of looking back with regret. Number two, we are thankful for our gifts, our appearance, and our temperament because God is using us exactly as we are. Every detail of our life has been planned out by him because he wants to use us for a specific purpose. There is only one you. Your fingerprint is unique. There's no one else who looks exactly like you or has your exact same DNA. And the reason for that is because God wants to use your life. And so stop complaining. Be thankful so that God can start using you. Number three, we flee sexual immorality because God will reward a righteous life. Number four, we work hard Because we know that our labor is not in vain. God is working. Isn't it amazing that Joseph's in prison? Joseph is experiencing all this hardship and he keeps getting promoted because he keeps on being diligent. He keeps on working hard, which is related to the next observation about how we should live. We don't grumble in our suffering because God is working for our good. There is not one example in this entire story in all of these ups and downs where Joseph is complaining about the circumstances that God has him in. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. He's moving forward in faith. Next, if we are promoted and succeed, we bow down in worship because we understand that all that we have is a gift. See, as Americans, we tend to think, I am successful because I've worked harder than everybody else. And what we see in this story is that God's plan for your life and his sovereignty in your life is actually what has established you in the position that you have. And so we don't say, you're welcome to God. We say, thank you. We say thank you for our lives. And so we live to love and serve others because God has so graciously loved us and given us what we have. But there's an even more pressing application for all of us who are in this room right now. And that's to recognize that the reason that you are here this morning is not because you chose to wake up It's not because your friend invited you here. It's not because you're smarter or better than anyone else out there. You are here this morning because God wants relationship with you. He has orchestrated all the details and the events of your life to bring you into this room and I'm specifically talking to those who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and I want you to ask this question what are the chances what are the chances that I would be here and that I would be hearing this message and what I'm saying is it's not about chance it's about God and he's put you in your seat because he wants know you. And the only appropriate response is to bow the knee to King Jesus and to recognize his love and his control and his grace in your life and to see that your rebellion against him is like a fish rebelling against the water. He has given you life and breath and everything else. And so would you submit your life to him? Let's pray. Jesus, it is amazing to read uh, through this story and to recognize your sovereign hand in the life of Joseph. And it really makes us think about our own lives It makes us consider how whether we're in a time of suffering or we're in a time of fear or we're in a time of prosperity. It allows us to zoom out and it allows us to see that we are not the masters of our own destiny. We are not the captains of our soul, God, but you are working. Help us to see. Help us to see your invisible hand at work so that we can appropriately re- respond to you as Lord and King of our lives. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.